Welcome to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. It started back in March 2010. A crew of real-life friends, each a scholar, teacher, activist in their own right, came together to launch a blog. Yes, a blog. I mean, it was 2010. But the Crunk Feminist Collective was no ordinary digital offering in the boy-dominated blogosphere. This space was an intentional, unrelenting, percussive, Black feminist space that came complete with a full-on mission statement that read in part, quote, We will create a space of support and camaraderie for hip-hop generation feminists of color, queer and straight, in the academy and without, by building a rhetorical community in which we can discuss our ideas, express our crunk feminist selves, fellowship with one another, debate and challenge one another, and support each other as we struggle together to articulate our feminist goals, ideas, visions, and dreams in a way that are both personally and professionally beneficial. (laughs) Oh yeah, clearly these sisters had read bell hooks. In 2017, the Crunks curated a selection of their blog writings into an edited volume, the Crunk Feminist Collection. The essays tackled politics, pop culture, family, community, identity, and intersectionality, with the distinctive generational voice that long characterized the online writings. And now, the Crunk Feminist Collective is back. This time, they're showing up as mamas and aunties and big sisters. They're inviting adolescents, teens, and young adults into the cipher as they spit analysis and advice in their latest book, Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood. We wanted to talk about the book, and when the crunks roll, they roll deep. So I sat down with all three authors last week. My name is Brittany Cooper. I'm Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers. My name is Chanel Kraft-Tanner. I'm the director of the Center for Women at Emory University. My name is Susanna Morris. I'm associate professor of literature, media, and communication at the Georgia Institute of Technology. It's literally and figuratively a guidebook. So we have a glossary. We have, you know, bulleted lists. We have playlists. Like you can pull out chapters and read about what it means to be a young woman of color or non-binary youth of color. And how do you navigate friendships? How do you navigate dating? How do you navigate the fact that, you know, your immigrant parents have particular expectations for you, but you're living in the United States or another part of the West and, you know, you're trying to live like your other friends are that are your age. So it really is anticipating lots of the questions that young people will have and giving really practical answers that are grounded in Black feminism. So, Chanel, I love this idea because I feel like I've seen two different iterations of something that didn't quite do that. So there was like the it was like the American Girl doll series of, you know, like going <laughs> yeah. through, um, you know, a- a adolescence. Right. And, you know, not that that's not useful, that that book can be useful. Those books can be useful, like the care and keeping of you kind of things. And then I've seen, you know, the kind of scholarly, academic, analytic books about what exactly those like intersectional navigations are, but never combined, right? So both understanding what they are in a scholarly and historic way, but then making it a practical advice guide for young people themselves. 
Absolutely. And I think so much of what we thought about with this book um, was what is it that we needed as girls? And how can we also really practice a politics of meeting girls where they are? So we give them the feminism that we all have. We're all experts in these in these areas. We have PhDs and we work in this area. But we also know that the young people that we meet, they may come in the door saying that they're feminists. I have a nine-year-old. She told me she was a feminist when she was six. I wasn't a feminist until I was 18, um, but she said she was a feminist. And so they have the language, but they don't really know what to do next. Like, what does it look like to live your feminism? How does it help you negotiate friendships in your dating life? And so it was really important for us to meet them with their, where they are, um, but also to give them that little big sister auntie kind of guidance along the way. Brittany, let me point out, I don't necessarily know how to live my feminism. I mean, I know a lot about these topics, like you all as a scholar, but I would be hard pressed if you asked me how to live your feminism. I mean, I messed that up a lot. I do well sometimes, but I mess it up a lot too. Yeah. I mean, we look, we take the, the position here that we don't know everything, but really we're just trying to give people, um, our readers, we're trying to invite them into a conversation with us. And so we specifically say like, we don't have this all figured out, but we just wanna hold it together with you because we're all trying to figure it out. And one of the funniest things that happened as we've been touring this book is that people our age are like, wait a minute, like I still need this advice, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Like, like I, you know, maybe I do need to like look at my friendships a little bit differently, or maybe I do need to be more bold in my flirting or more confident, or maybe I do need to set better boundaries. And so our position is that this is just good information to have at any stage of your life, but also what kinds of girlhoods we, we have had. Chanel often says that we think feminism can lead to a better girlhood. And so what kind of girlhoods could we have had if we had this information earlier? And it just becomes our way, our love offering to young people to say, we don't know everything, but here's some stuff we think we know that might be useful for you as you figure it out. All right. So who wants to give me a good practical guide basis for just defining feminism? You know, you, you said you're, uh, you're at six, your little person was saying, um, I'm a feminist. What did that mean um, either to you or to her? You know, she first thought feminism was a job, right? So she was like, I want to be hey, a feminist. It kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. And I could see how her little brain would think that because all her aunties are feminists, but they also work doing feminism. And I directed a women's center. So she she was aspiring to it, right? And I, you know, I said to her, you know, it's really a viewpoint. It's you can be a feminist right now. It's it's how you live your life. It's how it's this belief that, you know, girls and boys can do the same things. And so she came back the next day and was like, okay, well then if that's what it is, I am a feminist. Like I'm declaring it. We threw her a whole party. We went to Olive Garden and, you know, I gave her trinkets and, and tools that, that can make it tangible for her and told her it was about friendship and gave her a friendship bracelet and a rainbow colored football to say boys and girls can do the same things. And, you know, I told her, gave her a seed and said, you know, a part of your job now is to grow another one. Um, and a heart and, and told her that at the end of the day, feminism is ultimately about love. Um, and I think that, you know, she was six and that was the language that she needed at six. We put in our glossary in the back of the book, 
that feminism is a social movement and a set of beliefs that aims to tear down the system of male domination known as the patriarchy. Ideally, this movement is also anti-racist and anti-elitist. So that we think is a good definition for young people who are maybe, you know, just kind of coming into feminism, that it, it talks about class, it talks about race, it is really looking at power, and it is a way to, to think about your individual relationships. I do want to be clear, though. I think of myself as a feminist, but I don't have to eat at Olive Garden, do I? <laughs> no, but, you know, if your daughter gets to pick her favorite place, you know, we were all oh, like, oh, no. Right. <laughs> That's where you pick it when it's her party. We're like, where would you like to go anywhere in Atlanta? She's like, Olive Garden. <laughs> So that's where we went, because that's where she picked. So, <laughs> no, you not, do not have to. <laughs> but it, it's not a small point, though, Suzanne. I want to come to you on this because I do think that this is a really different way to think about how, you know, a, a, a crew of black feminists engaged in the project of um, what might have, and, and I'll come to you on this as well later, Brittany, but what might have at other eras, at other turn of the centuries, um, might have been thought of as an uplift project, but where where the the little person would not have been able to direct where we're going to eat, right? Or how we're going to engage this. And I'm wondering if in this guide, you're also maybe flipping something for teachers and caretakers and parents. Part of our, our feminist project is that we really trust young people. So, you know, Chanel was bringing up earlier that folk, young folk know a lot. You know, they put us on the stuff often, you know, and so we're not really moving in the in the space of like children should be seen and not heard that many of us may have been raised in that kind of old school way. Right. Even folks with progressive politics oftentimes have kind of narrow notions of what children or young people can and should do in the world. And all of a sudden, 18 and 25, they're supposed to know all this stuff. Well, how do you know stuff if you haven't been moving through the world? So we really trust young people. At the same time, we're there as folks that they can come to. And we model that for the adults reading the book, right? So I'm child-free, but I'm an aunt. I've been an aunt since I was 13. And so I've had a lot of practice over the past three decades of talking to young people and, and sometimes being that person that, well, you don't really want to go to your mama, but you want to come talk to me. We don't invite an undermining parents or anything like that. And we do invite uh, young people to give their parents some slack. So there's some conversations that we have around say, uh, sharing chores and, you know, girls particularly feeling kind of burdened by having to take care of younger siblings and things like that. And we have a whole class analysis around that. Like, rather than blaming your mama for having mm -hmm. you pick up your brother after school, let's talk about how capitalism works, right? But we don't dismiss the young person's concern out of hand. Like, man, you just being lazy, get over <laughs> it. We say, yeah, like, it, it sucks that you have to tote your little brother around everywhere, but maybe y'all can, you know, Go to the fair, you can take them to the arcade and you can chill with your friends while also taking care of your little brother. But the critique is for capitalism, right? We're not going to blame black mamas because everybody blames black mamas. And we're also at the same token, not going to start that narrative of blaming young black and brown women because that narrative starts early. So we, we try to toe that line of listening to their concerns and honoring them as real and not dismissing them while also inviting them to sort of have a bigger picture. 
Mm, I, I love that. And, and sort of thinking about, okay, I can validate your, um, your very real emotional and intellectual experiences and preferences. I'm wondering, Brittany, if you want to also weigh in on this, the ways in which your scholarship um, has informed what it even means to kind of write a guide, right? A girlhood guide. I never wanted to have an academic career that was solely about talking to academics because all of us are working class girls. We're all first generation college graduates, first generation PhDs. And so we wanted to do work that reaches girls that are like us and girls in our communities and, and folks back home that we wanna be in community with. Uh, and so this is certainly us saying to the academy, that talking to other experts is not the the, val the place where the value of our work necessarily lies. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about though in this book, we have a chapter on code switching. And so we talk to young people about the demand to you know, perform a particular kind of professionalism or poise or being put together when you leave the house in order to impress the powers that be. And so what does it mean if you do use that as a survival strategy? And what does it mean to respect people who don't use that as a survival strategy, right? Um, and, and we use the language of respectability politics and we try to help young folks to understand that this comes about at a time in our history where it was dangerous to just be a black person walking down the street. And unfortunately, we are back in a time period where that mm -hmm. remains true. Um, and so we wanted young people to have the language for that, but also the agency to say, whichever creative ways you might be using to navigate the world and to navigate your circumstances are okay, it's just really important that you are clear about who you are and about the choices that you are making. And also, I think that too, what we said is like, people already think that black and brown girls are problematic, that trans kids are problematic because, you know, because they demand to be paid attention to and listened to and to have their issues heard. And they're often seen as a problem just the moment that they walk into the room. And so we say, you know what, cool, we're going to flip that on its head. We're going to give you the language around structures, around white supremacy, around patriarchy, uh, around why your school has such a problematic dress code. So yeah, if they say you're a problem, you're going to be a problem, but you're going to be a feminist problem problem, right? You're going to come into these spaces with the language to critique the structures of power that are being used to mistreat you and to silence you and to gaslight you. And, you know, and look, and that's what we want. We want an army of girls out here who are a whole problem. I'm wondering if any of you all have encountered in your, in your conversations, for example, with young people or possibly with parents um, or caregivers, the the kind of flip of this. So not not necessarily um, girls, um, uh, uh, femme folk, um, non-binary folk who are saying, look, I'm, you know, I'm a feminist, I am a progressive, I'm a radical, I'm out here to change things. But folks who are like, you know what, on all that feminism and I mean, sure, Black Lives Matter, but like what I'm trying to do is just fit in and make it through and achieve. So in other words, the kids maybe of progressive parents who are themselves a little bit more mainstream, we're going to call it. You know, we haven't encountered these kids yet because I think the thing that we've been doing in our conversations is just trying to name realities like 
rather than saying you have to be this right uh you have to show up and have a rah-rah feminist flag we actually also talked to the overachievers so i was the overachieving black girl and i like to tell people you know you didn't catch me at a protest movement until i was like 25 <laughs> because i was like i got this scholarship to keep i got these a's to get and i can't be getting in no trouble but what we talk to what we say to those girls is but what about the pressure like what happens when you feel like your life is falling apart and you're just trying to make something happen and it feels like no one is listening to you why do you think that that is going on and so as chanel frequently says we just try to meet girls where they are we're not trying to impose a politics on people but here's the other thing melissa even one of the things that i think we got to be real with young people about is you might not be trying to be about this woke life but in a world where like reproductive rights are on the verge of being stripped there are going to be some fights that we thought wouldn't matter that are very much going to affect people's quality of life and so also as inappropriate aunties it's our job to sort of say to young people like if you were trying to check out unfortunately baby you got to tune in mm -hmm. anybody else want to weigh in on that one yeah i think that there's just so much of the book to, to Brittany's last point, you know, we didn't really write it in a way that needs to be read cover to cover. I think that, you know, it's it's about those chapters that you can pull out. And, and it's true. I mean, we talk about, you know, not just reproductive justice, but we talk about you know, periods as a part of reproductive justice. And so I think that there are going to be, um, you know, this is a very aware generation, even those who are not like out in the streets, like organizing, they still know what's going on and they, or they want to know what's going on. And what we offer is a way to contextualize their lives and their world. And there's so much of the book that will do that for them. So I don't think you have to necessarily be woke. Like the, the chapter that Brittany was just talking about for the regular, you know, schmegular degular girl. Like we, we have a, a chapter in here that's just about confidence, which mm -hmm. all, you know, young girls need, especially at this age, we know that their confidence begins to dip in middle school. And so if you are a young person who feels that, that's like, man, I used to be so dope. I used to be able to do all the things and now I'm shy or I feel, you know, less sure of myself, then maybe you'll, you'll head over to the Boston Up chapter and find something in there for you. And so I think that it speaks to the mainstream girls too. Yes, you know, my daughter for sure is who we were thinking of, like what will she need at 13 when you say you're a feminist at six? But I think it's so much of, because we weren't feminists until, oh, well, Susanna was, but I wasn't <laughs> until 18. And so- I was uh, an early adopter. So much of this was me going back to things in my childhood that maybe I didn't know were feminists then, but definitely informed like that, that idea of crew and collectivity. I first learned that growing up in the hoods of Brooklyn. Like I first learned that. And so some of this was us reaching back and holding up those things that helped us survive our girlhoods that maybe we didn't see at the time as connected to feminism. But we know now like, no, nah, that's a good feminist practice right there. You know, the way our mamas and our aunties and our grandmas came together to do things that makes sense to us. And we want to make sure we lift that up. So a lot of this is a reclamation too of what feminism even is and who it belongs to by us saying but it belongs to poor working class girls of color too and we've always been here and this is this is what it looks like for us Susanna, I feel like I want to let you in as the early adopter here um, to, to also just uh, maybe speak on this moment yeah I mean when I started calling myself a feminist. I mean, I started calling myself a womanist in high school and then discovered Black feminism in college. I didn't, I was by myself. I was in the library reading books, you know? So 
that was my community. That was my crew. It was like ideas. Like I went to the library and, and read some Alice Walker and was like, oh, okay, this makes sense to me, you know? And, but I also wasn't in the streets until, you know, probably college, you know, I went to a women's college and we were protesting all kind of stuff, you know? But as a, a young person in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, growing up hyper-Christian, coming into my queerness late, you know, I, I didn't have the, the full language that I would have you know, much later. And so we're thinking about all those kind of young people who are on different journeys. So again, you don't have to be super woke, you know, and, you know, I also come from an immigrant background. My family's Jamaican and yeah, my mama was not going to let me go out in the streets. I mean, the nineties were different, <laughs> but also, yeah, there was no, the, the, the language around like being woke or being what have you. I was just trying to get out of my house so I can get to college and make something of myself. I very much had a striver's narrative. And I think that while young people may have a, a bit more language around politics than we might have had in, you know, however many years ago, this is not a book that is exclusively for the folks who've already been, you know, on TikTok watching like, you know, the, the feminist, you know, videos or what have you. If you've never heard of the word and your auntie has bought you this book or you see it in your school library, like it's for you too. All right. I have two last questions. One is, um, so this is the guide to crushing girlhood. I just want to ask about making sure you don't get crushed in girlhood and specifically um, the ways in which the text um, deals with questions of assault, um, abuse um, that may be coming either in um, peer-to-peer relationships or um, assault and abuse that might be coming from an adult. And I'm wondering how you all thought about um, addressing that um, in the context of this uh, text. We really addressed the question head on with a lot of sensitivity. And so the one of the main things we, we said was that we believe you, we see you. Uh, in a world where oftentimes Black and brown girls and young people are dismissed out of hand, are discussed as fast, um, as hoes, as what have you, uh, we, we don't take that stance at all. We're like, little sis, we see you, we love you, you don't deserve this. Um, you know, it's not your fault. So we speak very explicitly to that. And as someone who's, who is a survivor, you know, of, of childhood violence, it was very important to me and I know important to my co-authors that we take that unapologetic stance, right? That we ride for young people uh, and that we honor their pain in particular kinds of ways. Another thing that we do is offer some practical advice. So we have resource guides uh, in the book and just talk about like what it means to be growing up in, let's say the abuse is happening in your household and it's with family members and what what are some practical steps that you can take, right? Does it mean talking to a trusted person? Does it mean staying with other folks? Like, what does it look like? Uh, so we're, we're very clear that we're on the side of young people and we want them to live and to thrive and to let them know that it's not their fault. Yeah, this was one of the harder, one of the harder chapters to write, but one of the most important. And it was, it's called Can We Live? And I think you know, in addition to talking about sexual assault, we talk about, you know, the hard things we had to navigate as girls. My mother died when I was a girl. Brittany's father died when she was a girl. And so, you know, it's also one of those chapters where we had to be very vulnerable and, and honest to say, like, we really don't have much to give you in this other than visibility and collectivity to say we're going to do this one together um, because we're still navigating hard stuff as black women. 
And so this was a place where, you know, we we ended with a letter saying, dear Black girl, um, we see you. And if no one else is singing a Black girl song, then we are. So here's my last question. I love to hear from all three of you on this. Um, it has just been my joy for so many years to watch you all together um, in digital spaces and uh, in written spaces. I've, uh, I've assigned the um, the edited volume that you all um, did together. And now I'm excited to be able to gift um, this book to, to some of the young people in my life. And I'm just wondering if in this moment you uh, can reflect a bit on um, the friendship that you have and the ways that uh, friendship and friendship among um, black girls and black queer folk, black non-binary folk um, makes uh, sort of, you know, create space for us to um, be creative, to be ourselves. Um, and, you know, maybe even speak to, to the challenges in sometimes how we present what, what friendship is. But mostly what I just want to hear you all talk about is what your friendships mean to each other. Mm. Let me tell you something. I love these girls and I will fight you in the street over them <laughs> and over any of my girls, right? Uh, Melissa, you included. Uh, and, you know, we, crew is a, a central tenet of our feminism. We really reject this white supremacist notion that's about um, competitiveness and ambition at the expense of the people who hold you up. We really believe that we can all be dope. We can all shine. We can all be stars. There is room for all of us to exist in our greatness and our power. And oh, but only if we help each other, only if we, you know, gather each other and love on each other. And so we really try to do that as an actual practice. So we're not just performing uh, friendship in this book. We are actual girls. We talk, we text, we're in community with each other. Um, and we have learned over 11 years of being members of the Crunk Feminist Collective together that our first responsibility in doing feminist work is to be just loving and kind to the people who are up close to us, not simply to be just loving and kind out in the streets and at the protests with a bunch of people that you don't know. And then you come home and you treat your folks up close to you raggedy. We reject that. Uh, and we really do try to love on each other. And one of the cool things about this book, we have uh, what we call the BFF code, the Better Feminist Friendships Code. And it has 11 articles about respecting boundaries, being a safe space, being each other's mirrors, affirming each other. Um, and so those are some of the, the things we try to live by. Uh, and I really love you know, the adage that says, if you wanna go fast, go alone, but if you wanna go far, mm. go together. Um, and, and we definitely, are got each other's backs and we're going together. I don't have much to add. Um, <laughs> You're like, I too will fight in the streets. Does anyone want to go to the <laughs> oh, street well, yeah, for well, this fight? <laughs> no, I, I am quite a fighter. I was in my girlhood. And so a part of, <laughs> I wasn't always a good friend, um, but we do talk about that in the book as well, a particular fight I had over a boy. And so that would be an example of what not to do in feminist friendships. But this particular crew working with the Crunk Feminist Collective and being a part of it, it normalized collectivity for me. It showed me what is possible um, how to survive really, um, you know, spaces that are damaging to us as Black folks, that that the, the answer is community and collectivity and doing it together. And so this book, writing this book was a joy. Touring and talking about this book was an even bigger joy um, and really bonding and with my co-authors and just, you know, getting a chance to reflect on girlhood. And there were parts of it that were hard, 
to write, but it meant so much to be able to bring that hardness, the, the difficulties back to the group to say like, this was a tough week right in this section and being able to hold each other up through that. And so, you know, I know a lot of young girls, I was one of them that, you know, kind of felt like, oh, I don't really, I don't, I don't hang out with females, they caddy or whatever. I said things like that and boy, was I wrong. And I'm so happy that I was wrong. Um, you know, strong, friendships with women, with women of color, with Black women have really been the thing that I look forward to um, in, in my adult life and the thing that I can point to to say that's where my success is. Yeah, ditto. I would say my friends are the loves of my life. And mm -hmm. I hope to be an older lady living like the Golden Girls <laughs> or like Frankie and Gracie. <laughs> like getting into trouble at Shady Pines, you know, uh, and sitting somewhere on a porch, uh, sipping some bourbon and, you know, uh, reminiscing about all of the stuff we got into uh, and still are getting into. So that's how I sort of live my life. And, and these women allow me to live that out loud. So I just love them so much. I love that your your bestie futuristic dream is sitting on the porch drinking bourbon. My bestie and I have for, have for many years talked about what we call our tea drinking life when eventually like parenting and working and all the things will slow down enough that we can sit together on the porch and drink tea. But but maybe we need to update the bourbon. Just add a little bourbon to it, you know, <laughs> just put a little dash. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. I just want to say thank you to all three of you for joining us and for being part of the takeaway um, and our book club and for um, for giving us this great book that we can now give to the young people in our lives this season. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. When the world met Marley Diaz, she was 11 years old. The voracious reader was irritated when her fifth grade curriculum was dominated by books about, in her words, quote, white boys and their dogs. She talked to her mama about the issue. I told her and then she said, well, what are you gonna do about it? So we decided to start a campaign in which black girls are the main characters of the book. So Marley and her mom had extraordinary success with the 1000 Black Girl Books campaign ultimately receiving and donating to school libraries more than 13,000 books. But Marley was just getting started. During President Obama's second term, Marley was regularly involved with the White House Council on Women and Girls. In 2016, she spent part of her summer as editor-in-chief of her own zine at Elle magazine. Marley Mag even scored interviews with the likes of Senator Hillary Clinton and filmmaker Ava DuVernay. In 2018, Marley authored her own book, Marley Diaz Gets It Done and So Can You. And this year, she was named the 2021 Ambassador of the NEA Read Across America. And she hosted and executive produced a Netflix series. Hi, it's me, Marley Diaz. Welcome to Bookmarks, celebrating Black voices. I Love My Hair is a celebration of Black girl beauty and the power of natural hair. The book is written by Natasha Anastasia Tarpley and illustrated by E.B. Lewis. I Love My Hair is going to be read to us by Tiffany Haddish. Now a high school senior, Marley spent the fall submitting college applications. And in fact, just yesterday, she got an acceptance letter from Yale. Congrats. It's basically a miracle she had time to chat with me here on The Takeaway.
I appreciate any moment to talk to you and to get out of a little bit of school. So I I wanted to know if Marley wrote about her love of books on her college applications. So there wasn't a lot of direct questions that I selected that were about books, but I made sure to incorporate some of the authors. So I wrote about Jacqueline Woodson and I also wrote about you and our experience at L.com. So even though there wasn't a lot of direct questions about literacy and what I preferred, I wrote about education access, public policy and why I would use my education in public policy or political science and government to help uh, the education system. So it wasn't as direct as I hoped, but I was really excited to talk about it anyway. I knew I was gonna make my way into the conversation when it comes to books. So yeah, let's talk about Jacqueline Woodson for a moment. I know that, um, that, that her writing as well as her actual person has been important to you, but I'm wondering if you can also just reflect on Jacqueline Woodson as an author more broadly, why she matters to all of us. I think that Jacqueline Woodson should matter to all of us because she is truly such a strong and persistent voice in advocating for kids' ability to live freely. She wants her books to show kids examples of kids that, you know, who act and, and act kindly towards others, are themselves, appreciate others, have empathy, commit community service, and take time out of their day to be strong community members and agents of change. Um, and she's also written over 30 books that tell these stories considering so many different narratives and experiences in the process. And I feel like Jacqueline Woodson truly is spiritually and morally committed to helping children develop and grow to be the best person they can be. Um, And not necessarily regardless of race, but including all races, all genders, all sexualities, all abilities, and all financial statuses and any other thing that might distinguish you from someone else. Last night, I was um, sitting and listening as my second grader was reading aloud um, to the family from um, a book that they're reading in her class, and it's Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And it's great to hear her read, and she's giggling along with it, and she definitely enjoys the book. And at the same time, uh, your kind of 11 or 12-year-old self was playing in my head, and this, like, I'm so tired of white boys and their dogs. Um, It's not to say we shouldn't read books about white boys and their dogs, but I'm wondering about your taste in books and how you've seen it develop um, over time, sort of maybe over the past five years, kind of from middle school through high school. Well, it's really been quite interesting, and I love that question. I've never been asked it before, is that I've always been on an honors track or some sort of gifted track in my public school. Um, And when you're in middle school, even though you feel like, oh, I'm the smartest, I'm one of the smartest kids in the school, you're left with a lot of limited options about the kind of mature topics that you can address because racism in of itself is often seen as mature. And we don't talk about racial identity in books until we get to about high school, which I feel is problematic because it limits kids understanding that they are experiencing race from the time they're born, but they're not able to address it until they address this issue and address just one part of your identity until you get to high school. So as I've gotten to high school, I've read so many more books like The Bluest Eye and The Great Gatsby and The Things They Carried and Death of a Salesman, some of which have white main characters and some of which don't, that address you know, the quote unquote maturity of race when we should be having these conversations in middle school and in elementary school, which is what I've always argued. So it's been fun to finally have that unlocked in my public school system that I open the gates from being a gifted student. I get good grades and now I can talk about these things. But what really concerns me is that I'm only a part of, you know, 8% of my school that is achieving at this level and that we need to unlock conversations about racial identity Uh, financial inequity, classism in all classrooms, regardless of academic performance. And are books a way to do that? 
books are, in my opinion, the only way to do that because it allows kids to explore and discover topics through their own interpretation. Sometimes when we see things in TV and movies, we are already being told what the directors and producers and screenwriters would like us to see. And it can be difficult to take an alternate um, kind of interpretation of text or of, of visual media. But when you present kids with words, they can take every single last word and find an alternate way to perceive that information, to process it, and that each of us read very differently. So although there may be other options, I'm speaking a little bit hyperbolically, I really believe that reading presents every kid with the opportunity to learn for themselves, to use their own curiosity, perspective, and imagination to grow, and that we need to make sure that all sorts of topics are covered in books, because it's the one place where kids will be able to, you'll be able to really see what a kid understands, learns, and feels about a topic or issue. So say a few more words about the Netflix series Bookmarks and how you've been using that platform to, um, you know, continue to expand this message of the critical, not just about literacy, but engagement with books and reading and ideas. Bookmarks has really been my opportunity to, to provide resources for caregivers and educators about the ways that we can incorporate reading into classrooms that isn't just you know, sitting down or doing a story time, but we can, uh, we have a 12 episode animated series or partially animated series on um, Netflix that features celebrities, black celebrities, reading books about black experiences from black authors to kids around the world. So we have people like Lupita Nyong'o, Tiffany Haddish, myself, Marseille Martin, Karamo Brown, um, and it's been a really fun experience to get to executive produce and select the books and help figure out who do we want to represent this uh, part of our Black experiences. Um, but it's also been super fun to have bookmarks be free, regardless of if you have a Netflix subscription. You can watch bookmarks on Netflix Junior on YouTube. So it presents it presents teachers with the opportunity to show, you know, this way that we want to educate kids on Black stories in a fun, lighthearted and exciting and beautiful manner for free. Uh, and that's something that Netflix hasn't done a lot. So I feel really proud to have been a part of an experience that focuses on education equity and making sure that teachers in all schools, whether they have subscriptions to the streaming service or do not, are able to show their kids, you know, beautiful Black people that feel so much pride in their racial identity and overall identity, sharing these other and uplifting other Black stories in the process. And remind us why Black stories are important, not only for Black students, but beyond that, for, for, for all of us. Black stories are important for all of us because we need to exist as a community. There is no one, there is no individual, and that we must, as Black people, affirm our own identities by reading stories that reflect what we can do, what we wish to do, imaginations that we've never seen ourselves in, worlds we don't imagine we could achieve and um, or, or exist in. Uh, but it's also important for people who are not Black to read Black stories so they can learn about the experiences of others, so they can grow as empathetic people, as kind people, and they can dedicate themselves to an importance of learning, to being curious, to being interested in other people's identities and experiences. And I know some people really aren't, but I believe that it's a critical way to be a good person, a kind person in this world, and to, to be a lifelong learner, which is very important to me. All right. So for our last question, um, you know, this is kind of a holiday book club and a lot of folks like me, aunties and um, uh, cousins and maybe big or little sisters and brothers um, are looking to give books uh, as a gift um, this holiday season. Any books that you would suggest um, and maybe across a couple of different um, ages? So the first book for picture book I'm going to suggest is All Around Us by Selena Gonzalez. It's Selena with an X. 
Um, this book really touched me a lot. It's about a young girl walking in her garden with her grandfather and talking about how the universe's circle, our experiences are circular, um, and how communities exist in a circle. Um, and the book has such beautiful illustrations by Adriana M. Garcia. And I got to interview uh, Ms. Gonzalez for my NEA Read Across America campaign, where I'm the celebrity ambassador and I get to talk to authors about the books that they love. Um, and I realized that I love this book so much because my great grandmother passed away when I was 10. Um, and when I, it really, really hurt me a lot. And to this day is a super emotional topic for me. But as soon as I read this book, I realized how valuable it could have been for me at that time to actually see and hear a story about grief, about death that was accessible to younger kids that share these experiences and that allowed for them to actually have the words to express pain, to express tragedy. Um, the next book I'm going to recommend is Strongest Fire, Fierce, Fierce as Flame by Sabrina Kelker. Uh, this book is so uh, incredible. It's a story of a young uh, South Asian girl overcoming a time of rebellion and oppression within her community. So it's about girls. It's a, a young girl of color. And I, getting to interview her was incredible because she really had to be a historian to write that book that she had to go back and look through library files that were unseen, hear stories that she had never heard about, even within her own culture and family. Um, and she put her, her you know, most and best work into telling this story. And then my final book would be um, Modern History by Blair Amani. Blair Amani is a close peer of mine within activism and both literacy and, and education work. Um, and she is an incredible content creator on Instagram, Twitter, and all sorts of social media platforms, but she's also an author. Um, and Modern Herstory, I am featured on the back cover. It's really, really cute, but it tells the story of uh, several uh, young women and non-binary people that have created change in the world. And they highlight a lot of the stories that you might not hear about in school, which is still an inherent frustration to me that we wouldn't hear about these stories in school. But it's really valuable to have a book like that as a coffee table book, um, as something that other people would see. And then for adults, I would recommend Parent Like It Matters by my mom, Dr. Janice John uh, johnson Dias. She is a queen. Um, and that book really provides a guide for how parents that might hear my story or feel inspired by what I've been able to do at 16 can uplift the girls in their lives to be change makers, uh, to engage in their community and to not necessarily fight back, but to build communities that fight against oppression. Thank you, Marley Diaz. And shout out to her mom, Janice Johnson Diaz, who she name checked at the end. This next conversation is with one of my very favorite living authors. This is Anne Patchett, the author of These Precious Days and the co-owner of Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. The author of seven novels, all of which have a home on my personal bookshelves. Patchett's latest offering is a collection of essays on themes of family, home, writing, and friendship. In the book, she reveals that this collection of essays was necessary to write because it's all key scaffolding for an essay of such profound and lasting significance to her that she said she must write a full book to put it in. So that's where we begin when I asked her about the title essay of the book, These Precious Days, and just why it's so important to her. It's a story about my friend Suki Raphael, who 
came to live with us at the very beginning of the pandemic. Uh, she she was Tom Hanks's assistant. I had met her very briefly about three years ago. We had stayed lightly in touch over email. She had pancreatic cancer. Uh, she had a Whipple. She had chemo and radiation. She was pronounced cancer-free. The cancer came back. She was looking for a clinical trial to get into in a hurry. My husband, Carl, is a doctor here in Nashville where we live. He got her into a trial here. She was going to come out for 10 days, and then the trial was going to start at UCLA where she lived out in Los Angeles. So she came out here, and then the pandemic hit, and UCLA closed down the trial. So many trials were closed. Um, the flights were canceled, and she couldn't really travel anyway because she was so um, immunocompromised. And she ended up staying with us, and we had very, very precious days, a really amazingly beautiful time. Hearing you tell it in such a compressed um, summary is... Um, it's fascinating. E even the the language, um, you know, my friend uh, Suki, because part of what this essay and perhaps this entire collection of essays tells us is um, maybe our presumptions about intimacy um, are, are often exactly that, presumptions. And what mm. we think we know and who we think we know, we may not know in, in quite the, the ways. And, and that intimacy might look quite different um, than we, you know, expect from sort of sentimental movies or something. Yeah, I think that that's very true. And certainly in this book, there are stories about old friends of mine. There's a lot in here about my childhood best friend, Tavia, uh, college friends, friends from all different parts of my life. But my friendship with Suki was, was really incredible. What I realize is that when you make friends when you're a kid, you have an enormous amount of time to waste with someone. And when you make friends as an adult, you can make very close friendships, but you don't have that same just endless amount of time to waste. And I think about going to my freshman college dorm room and looking at this tiny space with two beds and, and then there's another person and thinking we're going to sleep in the same room together. We are total strangers. And then you become good friends. And that's sort of what it was like with Suki. We had breakfast and lunch and dinner together. We took all our walks together. We did everything together because we had so much time to waste. You actually made me yearn for aspects of the pandemic, um, which of course makes me feel terribly guilty having both lost um, loved ones myself and, um, and, and of course knowing how many people we've lost um, as, a, as a nation and as a world. And yet it, it did give us that gift of time. And, and when you write about, you know, the writers I know were kind of made for quarantine. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I was all yeah. good with that part. <laughs> yeah. Leave me alone in my house, please, for, <laughs> for months. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to find the right language to talk about the pandemic because you're right. It, it's horrible and it's devastating. But it also forced everyone to get off the hamster wheel. Uh, and to just stop running all the time in the exact same circle. I think also everyone was thinking about death. They were thinking about the, the people they had lost, the, the numbers on the nightly news, the fear of our own death. And part of that is, of course, just 
it's devastating. It's horrible. But also when you live in the presence of death, it gives you the opportunity to see how beautiful life is and to really appreciate it and to think if there is not limitless time and guess what? There never is. I want to open my eyes and really see the world. And that's what Suki and I had. And death is another through line. There's an intimacy through line. There's a friendship through line, but there's also death. In fact, you start with this um, fear of death. So it's a very um, uniquely specific fear of death around um, being a novelist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a it is a very funny but very true thing. And I have a lot of novelist friends who would say the same thing. When I am in the middle of a novel, I am carrying a world of people in my head. And I know that if I step out into traffic and get hit by a car, I will take the whole world in my head with me. There aren't any notes. There's no one else who can finish it. But I have spent so much time with these people that I do suddenly start to really worry about death every single time I've written a novel. And then as soon as the novel is finished, that fear goes away. It's such a strange thing. But when I write nonfiction, I don't have the same experience. And that's because nonfiction is true. So, you know, if I died in the middle of writing about Sookie, my husband I don't, he wouldn't finish the essay, but, but at least he lived it. He would know, he would know that she was there. He would know what was happening. He would tell someone else that that experience would live on. Not the case with a novel. Yeah. It was an important insight for me. I, you know, a million years ago when I started college, I thought I was going to be a fiction writer. And then I read like Morrison and was like, oh, no, that I can't do that. Um, but I, but I had a similar insight reading, um, reading that from you, and this sense of oh, well, I've never been inhabited by characters like that, except actually maybe when I'm reading. Sometimes I yeah. do fear my demise as a reader because I, I just want to know. I want to keep hanging out with them. But I wonder, is that something cultivated? Is that a skill, or is that? Is that just the constitutive nature of being a novelist? I think it just happens. Uh, Plus, novelists spend a whole lot of time alone worrying about things and thinking about things. But I got to tell you, when you just said Morrison, I thought that is the way to explain it. Because you think about Toni Morrison walking around with beloved and Setha and all of those people inside of her, if something had happened to her, all of those people would have gone with her. Anne Patchett, author of the new book, These Precious Days Essays. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. What a pleasure this has been. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.